Welcome to Russian History Retold. Episode 249, How the United States Saw Stalin and the USSR 1943, Part 1. Last time, we learned about Russian Christmas and New Year celebrations. Today, we go in a completely different direction as we discuss how the American media portrayed Joseph Stalin and the USSR in 1943, when we're in the midst of World War II, and the Soviet Union is now our ally. My primary source of information on this topic comes from two of my close friends, Claire and David Zybert. Fellow Rotarians, they gave me the gift of the March 29th, 1943 issue of Life magazine. The issue was devoted entirely to Joseph Stalin and the Soviet Union. Nevertheless, it is a glimpse into how the U.S. government wanted us to view their ally in World War II. As you know, it turned out very differently after the war's conclusion. I noted early on when reading this issue of life that they used the term Russia far more than the Soviet Union or USSR when talking about their current ally. This is because it was assumed, and rightfully so, that Russia was the dominant country within the Soviet Union. Nevertheless, they used the terms interchangeably, likely because the American public was familiar with Russia more than the term Soviet. The managing editor of Life magazine at the time was Henry R. Luce. He was an American magazine magnate who founded Time, Life, Fortune, and Sports Illustrated magazines. Luce had been called, quote, the most influential private citizen in America of his day. And this was especially true at the time of the publication of this issue. Life magazine was noted for its photography, which they stressed was very difficult to come by in Russia because of the control of the government of every facet of Russian life. One of the main contributors of many of the pictures appearing in the magazine especially of the German army, was Vladimir Muzinov. He captured the camera of a fallen German photographer and got the pictures developed and sent back to the United States. What was interesting was that the chemicals and paper needed to produce the images came from Leningrad, which was under siege at the time. How they were able to circumvent the blockade is a story lost to time. I'm going to start talking about what Life said about the Soviet Union with their description of this particular issue. It appears on page 13 as an entitled, quote, Special Issue on the USSR. Quote, of all the great countries of the world, the USSR is least known to Americans. For 25 years, the Soviet Union has lived and grown behind a wall of secrecy and suspicion. Within the Soviet state, free journalism did not exist. Foreign reporters were rigidly restricted, and foreign photographers were generally stopped at the borders. Hence, the world's picture of the USSR today has been formed through a haze of propaganda, pro and con. In this special issue, life has tried to apply to the USSR the methods of objective pictorial journalism. 
because of the scarcity of good pictures and unbiased information, the task has been difficult. But life has tapped every available source and used every effort to present a true picture of the country whose power and greatness is the greatest political fact to emerge from this war. As you can hear, Life Magazine's editors and writers have placed a caveat on what they present in this issue. They knew that the Soviet Union was a closed country and that they would have a hard time giving an accurate picture of the country. You will see what I mean as we explore this important historical document. The first article is about the Lend-Lease program that the United States oversaw. At the time of this article, the United States had, quote-unquote, lent the Soviet Union $1.825 billion in aid. In 2023 dollars, that would equal $31.3 billion, a truly staggering amount. The Lend-Lease program was a policy under which the United States supplied the United Kingdom, the Soviet Union, and other allied nations with food, oil, and materiel between 1941 and 1945. It was given on the basis that such help was essential for the defense of the United States. This aid included warships and warplanes, along with other weaponry. It was signed into law on March 11, 1941, and ended on September 20, 1945. In general, the aid was free, although some hardware, such as ships, was supposed to be returned after the war. The USSR did not return any of the hardware post-World War II, but then again, neither did any of the other allies. The idea of returning the hardware was just a means of getting the bill passed through the U.S. Congress. President Roosevelt, in a press conference, made the following pitch, quote, What do I do in such a crisis? I don't say, neighbor, my garden hose cost me $15. You'll have to pay me 15 for it. I don't want $15. I want my garden hose back after the fire is over. To which Republican Senator Robert Taft responded, quote, Lending war equipment is a good deal like lending chewing gum. You certainly don't want the same gum back. The Soviet Union was receiving a large number of tanks, planes, and food but the Soviet people were not told where the supplies were coming from, which frustrated both the U.S. government and the American people. As reported by Life, quote, Russia's reception of these tools of war has been somewhat enigmatic. U.S. officers stationed at the Russian supply base in Iran, funneled for all goods shipped via the southern route, report that Red Army pilots have expressed vast enthusiasm for the low-fighting Air Cobra and the fast A-20 attack bombers, which are ideally suited for providing air support to the Russian armies. On the other hand, Soviet military authorities have repeatedly turned down U.S. requests for permission to observe land-lease equipment in operation at the Russian front. Americans do not know for certain how our tanks, planes, and trucks behave once they have left the U.S. assembly plants in Iran. In return for assistance, which the U.S. is willing and happy to give, American officials sometimes wish their Russian customers would be a little bit more candid. 
a little more extroverted, a little more informative as to their overall strategic requirements and aims. As you could hear, there was a bit of trepidation in the tone of the words used, but that was reversed in the following paragraph. Quote, Lend-Lease is not only a great fact of the war, but a testing ground for American-Russian relations. These two countries seem likely to emerge as the two greatest powers of the post-war era. Then a bit of reality hit when they went on to say, quote, Without their full and honest cooperation, there can be no stable, peaceful world. As we now know, these words were proved to be highly prophetic. The propaganda the U.S. had to provide to the American people to continue with Lend-Lease and all of the other facets of supplying the Allied countries was all-encompassing. They had to show that not only did the average American sacrifice for the good of the war effort, but that wealthy industrialists like Henry Ford were digging deep into their own pockets as well. On page 16, they did a write-up entitled, Ford Tire Plant is Shipped to USSR. The article went like this, quote, In 1938, Henry Ford reared at River Rogue, the world's most advanced tire factory. Last week, his $5.6 million investment was being mailed, nailed in crates and dispatched piecemeal to Russia under the Lend-Lease Program. When it arrives at its destination and begins production, the USSR will benefit by some 1 million military truck tires a year. Ford's fabulous transshipment is an example of Lend-Lease operation at its best. For logistical experts have discovered that both time and shipping space may be saved by moving entire factories rather than just their products overseas. Also en route to Russia, a $1.9 million oil refinery scheduled for further shipment one $1.3 million electric power plant. When Mr. Ford completed his Great River Rogue Tire Factory during peacetime five years ago, he fitted the last link in his great raw materials to finished automobile production chain. Now, in the absence of rubber and civilian pleasure cars, he is disposing of a peacetime plant he can no longer use. In return for his plant, Mr. Ford is getting Lend-Lease cash. By the end of last week, all of his giant Banbury presses have been created and ready to move. His five-ton mill rollers had received anti-rust treatment and were being created. But several weeks' work still remained. As you can see, Ford wasn't really making a sacrifice at all. He was paid handsomely for a plant that would have drained his finances. No, the industrialists of America were making out like bandits. They were being paid to unload unprofitable assets. This would allow them to take advantage of the post-war economic boom. The American people were the ones making sacrifices, helping out our allies like the Soviet Union. As they wrote on page 18, quote, In addition to the vast quantities of goods obtained through Lend-Lease, the American people are chipping in with contributions of their own. 
It is about this voluntary aid that Ambassador Stanley specifically charged the Russian government with not informing the Russian people. Russian War Relief Relief Incorporated had raised more than $9 million for the Soviets since September 1941. This organization sends medical supplies, seeds to replant the scorched earth, and collects old U.S. clothing at the rate of 45,000 pounds per week. Russians get no new clothes by Lend-Lease except shoes. The three million pairs of soldiers' boots conveyed to the USSR last year had much to do with their preparedness for this winter's offensive. Best recent examples of the willingness of U.S. civilians to aid their allies with gifts in the Watches for Russia campaign in Seattle, Washington. In a short period of time, more than 1,000 timepieces were donated. When the most accurate of them have been checked and repaired, they will be turned over to the USSR for use by doctors and nurses at the front. This generosity by the American people was one of the reasons that would have been a hard sell to convince us to fight against the Soviets after defeating Germany. However, we had built them up as solid allies and friends, especially the Russian people. One of the first things I noticed while reading this issue of Life magazine was their determination to make the Russian people look good. It is also apparent that they bought into a lot of Soviet propaganda. It isn't because they had their eyes closed. Quite the opposite. They realized that Soviet society and their government would not give them the freedom to roam the countryside to find stories and photographs to share. As they put it, quote, they live under a system of tight state-controlled information, but probably the attitude to take toward this is not to get too excited about it. But from here, they begin to heap praises on the Soviet economy. Having a 2020 vision of the past, we know that things were nowhere near as rosy as this account makes it out to be. Quote, when we take account of what the USSR has accomplished in 20 years of its existence, we can make allowances for certain shortcomings, however deplorable. For that matter, even 15 years ago, the Russian economy had scarcely yet changed from the days of the czars, and the kulaks of the steppes were still treating modern industrial machines like new toys. In 1929, the Soviet Union did not have a single automobile or tractor plant. They further went on to say, quote, It is safe to say that no nation in history has ever done so much so fast. If the Soviet leaders tell us what that the control of information was necessary to get this job done, we can afford to take their word for it for the time being. We know the power of free speech and the necessity for it may, may assume that if those leaders are sincere in their work of emancipating the Russian people, they will swing towards free speech, and we hope, soon. Well, that last wish wouldn't happen until the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. And fortunately, that idea of free speech no longer exists in today's Russia. Another thing that this issue of Life magazine does an excellent job of is pointing out the multinationality of the USSR. Quote, like the U.S., 
The USSR is a huge melting pot. It contains 175 nationalities, speaking about 150 languages and dialects. They don't mix as much as our ethnic groups do, yet the system by which all these people are held together runs parallel to ours, and that it is a federation. There are 54 autonomous units in the USSR, republics, regions, and territories. Well, obviously the concept that the units were autonomous is ludicrous, but they didn't know this at the time or were terribly naive. The editors at Life also did not know about the mass deportations of indigenous peoples in the Caucasus, Crimea, and other regions of the Soviet Union to parts unknown. Under the title of And Realistic, they try to lay out a map for future cooperation between the U.S. and USSR. They realize these are two completely different political systems, but they hope for a chance to achieve peace after the war. Quote, Clearly, it is up to both the USSR and the U.S. to seek a broader and more enlightened base for their future relationship. On Russia's part, we think she must try to overcome the suspicion which she seems to harbor against all democratic peoples. Russia should realize that she has strong friends in the U.S., and she should give these friends help and encouragement by opening the channels of information and goodwill. Well, nice dream. Unfortunately, the reality of history tells us otherwise. As we move on, I found how they portrayed the Russian people really interesting. Many citizens of the USSR hate to be called Russians. The reason is that their country is a federation of 16 Union republics, among which the people known as the Great Russians are only one. The USSR is a hemisphere, creating cradling the vast areas where most of the races of the West brawled for countless centuries. It is a huge melting pot of bloods, ranging from the tundra dwellers and the Muslim nomads of the steppes to Buddhist Mongols and city men of the West. And this is the first time I've come across the term Great Russians in my reading over the past 12, almost 13 years of podcasting. Maybe I just missed it, but I'm pretty sure it's a first for me. If any of you have come across the term in the past, please post it on our Facebook page, Russian Rulers History Podcast. Now, this article further goes on to say, quote, What brought all these people into one sovereign entity was the race of great Russians, a prolific gregarious, talkative, aggressive, and friendly mass of blonde Slavs who have conquered and colonized a sixth of the Earth's land surfaces. They had crossed Siberia and reached the Pacific 300 years ago. They will go anywhere and try anything. They were one hell of a people long before the revolution. To a remarkable degree, they look like Americans, dress like Americans, and think like Americans. 
I mean, this last line was about as disingenuous as any in this issue. This is more about getting the American people to relate to the Russians rather than being honest. But, as they say, all is fair in love and war. Following this, they felt the need to bolster the opinions of their readers of the Bolsheviks and denigrate the Tsarist regime. Quote, People were talking about Russia as the country of the future a hundred years ago. Even when Russia was loaded with some of the most undesirable rulers in history, it was producing great writers, composers, scientists, and philosophers. Pushkin, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, the greatest men of Russia, were invariably opposed to the decadent Russian system. They then alluded to the Decemberist revolt of 1825 when they said the following, quote, A century ago, a cabal of aristocratic land-holding officers organized a society resembling Lenin's Bolsheviks to get rid of the Tsar and set up a republic ruled without the consent of the people for the people's own good. Then they went further back into history with this, quote, Ivan the Terrible ran a revolution against his own boyars that has been compared to Stalin's revolution in 1929 against the Kulaks. Strewn throughout the magazine were images of the destruction caused by the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. One, on page 26, was particularly disturbing. It shows numerous bodies on the ground with the caption, quote, since 1941, violent death has come to 10 million of Russia's people. This, we later find out, was a gross understatement. Next up, we have a brief portrait of, as the headline on page 29 read, the father of modern Russia. Of course, they're talking about Lenin. It was one of the nicest things I've ever read about the man in all my years of research. It reads, Quote, perhaps the greatest man of modern times was Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov. He took the name Lenin, spent most of his 54 years in exile from his country, and gave the world the biggest new political fact of our era, the Federal Union of Soviet Socialist Republics under a form of communism. They further went on, quote, Lenin was that rarest of men, an absolutely unselfconscious and unselfish man with a passionate respect for ideas, but even more respect for deeds. He had mastered the trick of complete concentration. He had a fantastic capacity for work and was scrupulous and thorough about the smallest as well as the biggest duties of life. He spoke English, German, and French, as well as Russian, and could read Italian, Swedish, and Polish. He was a normal, well-balanced man who was dedicated to rescuing 140 million people from a brutal and incompetent tyranny. He did what he set out to do. Lenin did not make the revolution in Russia, nor did any one organized group of men, but he made the revolution make sense and saved it from much of the folly of the French Revolution. It is impossible to imagine what history of Russia and the world would have been had he not lived. Well, 
I have to think that either the Soviets had written this or Walter Durante, the Stalin apologist, had penned this glowing article about Lenin. The following few pages are a collection of pictures of Lenin throughout his life. They all have captions that suggest that Lenin was a truly remarkable man. They also convey the sadness that fell over the Soviet Union when he died in 1924. From here, we have an article about the conversion of Leninism into Stalinism. It reads like something that was written with the approval of Uncle Joe. It somewhat derides Lenin's new economic policy known as NEP, as well as Leon Trotsky. However, they also seem to praise the up-and-coming Stalin as an opposing faction to Trotsky. Quote, when Lenin died in January 1924, there were two powerful leaders among his associates who might have taken over. One was the brilliant, talkative, erratic, middle-class Leon Trotsky, a thinker and dreamer. The other was the strong, tough, silent proletarian man of action, Joseph Stalin. They went on to write, quote, Although he continually opposed many Bolshevik decisions, Trotsky was not expelled from the party until 1927. He went into exile, leaving behind a secret network of opposition, which strove for years to undermine the government. Assassination of a prominent Soviet leader, Sergei M. Kirov, in 1935 or 34, led to the treason trials from 1935 to 1938 during which Stalin ruthlessly eliminated the so-called Trotskyist Fifth Column. Well, as you can hear, they justified the Great Terror of the 1930s. Well, they went a step further with the following that kind of defies reality. Quote, At Lenin's death, the Soviets were embarked on many great internal crusades. The violent campaign against religion was not checked until the middle of the last decade, when the 1936 Constitution guaranteed freedom of religious worship. Other early crusades were against bourgeois concepts of the family and morality. But now the pendulum has swung the other way. Divorces are harder to obtain, the family is glorified, and sexual looseness is condemned. As you can see, the buildup of Stalin and the Soviet system was in full force. The next day's stage of showing uh, how much the Soviets were our friends and allies was to show off their leadership. The article about them begins with this paragraph, quote, government, regardless of political character, are only as efficient as their leaders. Leaders of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics are, above all, extremely efficient administrators. They did not achieve high office because of their personalities their looks, their voices, their families, or their education. They fought to the top crust because they were able to prove themselves tough, intelligent executives loyal to the USSR. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And before we go on, I wish you all a happy new year. This is the first uh, episode of 2023 of a lot great uh, stories planned and episodes already written up for the following year. Uh, you can find out what they are if you join us on Facebook at the Russian Rulers History Podcast. I've listed what I'm going to be producing, and I've got plans uh, through May of this year already. So join me next time 
as we continue to go through the Life magazine issue of March 29, 1941. We will begin with their description of the foremost leaders of the Soviet Union, not named Stalin. They include Lazar Kaganovich, Anastas Mikoyan, Andrei Zhdanov, Lavrenti Beria, Klavdia Nikolaevya, Nikolai Shevernik, Alexei Shcherbakov, and Nikolai Vozhinesky. So until next time, das vidanya i spasiba za